Catalyst Author Series is a premier destination for lovers of Canadian literature, hosting award-winning authors and exciting new voices. Meet the Canadian writers everyone's reading at branches across the city. The A-List is made possible due to the support of Canada Council for the Arts. For more information, please visit tpl.ca slash A-List. On Thursday, April 28, in celebration of National Poetry Month, A-List author Rupi Kaur, a multifaceted artist and poet, visited Toronto Reference Library to perform spoken word poetry and discuss her book, Milk and Honey, a collection of poems and prose about the experience of love, loss, survival, and femininity. Here is Rupi Kaur with Flair Magazine's deputy editor, Maureen Halushak. Oh, oh my God, I feel like it's prom and I'm prom queen. <laughs> That's so nice, because I was not having a good time in high school, obviously. Thank you. Oh, I feel so nice. Okay, all right. You know what? Only have half an hour to perform, so let's get right into it, and we're going to chat a lot afterwards. So the first piece I'm going to be performing is called The Art of Growing. <clears throat> I felt beautiful until the age of 12 when my body began to ripen like new fruit. And suddenly, the boys, they didn't want to play tag at recess. They wanted to touch all the new and unfamiliar parts of me. The parts I didn't know how to wear, didn't know how to carry, tried to bury in my ribcage. Boobs, they said. And I hated that word. Hated that I was embarrassed to say it, that even though it was referring to my body, it didn't belong to me. It belonged to them. And they repeated it like they were meditating upon it. Boobs, he said. Let me see yours. There is nothing worth seeing here but guilt and shame. I try to rot into the earth below my feet, but I am still standing one foot across from his hooked fingers, and when he charges to feast on my half moons, I bite into his forearm and decide that I hate this body, that I must have done something terrible to deserve it. So when I go home, I tell my mother that the men outside were starving. She tells me, I must not dress with my breasts hanging, said the boys will get hungry if they see fruit. Said I should sit with my legs closed like a woman Ara, or the men will get angry and fight. Said I can avoid all of this trouble if I just learn to act like a lady, but the problem is that doesn't even make sense. I can't wrap my head around the fact that I have to convince half the world's population that my body is not their bed. I am busy learning the consequences of womanhood when I should be learning science and math instead. I like cartwheels and gymnastics, so I can't imagine walking around with my thighs pressed together like they're hiding a secret, as if the acceptance of my own body parts will invite thoughts of lust in their heads. 
I will not subject myself to their ideology because slut shaming is rape culture and virgin praising is rape culture and I am not a mannequin in the window of your favorite shop. You can't dress me up or throw me out when I am worn. You are not a cannibal and your actions are not my responsibility, so you will control yourself. And the next time I go to school and the boys, they hoot at my backside, I push them down, foot over their necks, and defiantly say, boobs, and the look in their eyes is priceless. Wicked, thank you. Let's start with chapter one. I'm gonna be shouting out the page number so you can follow along with me. All right, page 15. Wow, that makes a world of a difference. Okay, page 15. Midweek sessions. The therapist places a doll in front of you. It is the size of girls your uncles like touching. Point to where his hands were. You point to the spot between its legs, the one he fingered out of you like a confession. You pull the lump in your throat out with your teeth and say, fine, numb, really. Page 19, to fathers with daughters. Every time you tell your daughter that you yell at her out of love, you teach her to confuse anger with kindness, which seems like a good idea until she grows up to trust men who hurt her because they look so much like you. Page 33. The art of being empty. Emptying out of my mother's belly was my first act of disappearance. Learning to shrink for a family who likes their daughters invisible was the second. The art of being empty is simple. Believe them when they say you are nothing. Repeat it to yourself like a wish. I am nothing, I am nothing, I am nothing. So often, the only reason you know that you're still alive is from the heaving of your chest. Yo, I'm gonna jump in right here because everyone's so quiet. There's like 900,000 people in the room and we don't sound like 900,000 people in the room. All right, so. We're gonna snap and laugh and clap, yeah? Cause I need to know that you're liking this stuff or otherwise I'm just gonna go and like, go home and watch some TV, yeah. <laughs> Anyways, y'all are really beautiful and I love you, so thank you. Oh, thanks. Um, thank you. Page 35. When my mother opens her mouth to have a conversation at dinner, my father shoves the word hush between her lips and tells her to never speak with her mouth full. This 
is how the women in my family have learned to live with their mouths closed. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you. Page 37. Father, you always call to say nothing in particular. You ask what I'm doing or where I am, and when the silence stretches like a lifetime between us, I scramble to find questions to keep the conversation going. What I long to say most is, I understand that this world has broken you. It has been so hard on your feet, and I don't blame you for not knowing how to remain soft with me. Sometimes, I stay up thinking of all the places you are hurting which you will never care to mention. I come from the same aching blood, from the same bones, so desperate for attention, I collapse in on myself. I am your daughter. I know the small talk is the only way you know how to tell me you love me, because it's the only way that I know how to tell you. Page 39. <clears throat> the thing about having an alcoholic parent is that an alcoholic parent does not exist. Simply an alcoholic who cannot stay sober long enough to raise their kids. All right. Okay, we're done chapter one, which is like super sad. Okay, so we're going to go into page chapter two, like loving, you know, y'all going to fall in love and be happy and, you know, whether that's with somebody else or with yourself, you know, fall in love with yourself first. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Page 47. No, it won't be love at first sight when we meet. It'll be love at first remembrance, because I have seen you in my mother's eyes when she tells me to marry the type of man I'd want to raise my son to be like. Page 59. So this is the poem that comes after you fall in, lo in love with yourself, and like this is a partner that you want, all right? I do not want to have you to fill the empty parts of me. I want to be full on my own. I want to be so complete. I could light a whole city. And then I want to have you because the two of us combined would set it on fire. Yeah. All right. Page 62. He asks me what I do. And so I tell him that I work for a small company that makes packaging for. He stops me mid-sentence. No, not what you do to pay the bills. What drives you crazy? What keeps you up at night? And so I tell him I write. He asks me to show him something. So I take the tips of my fingers, place them inside his forearm, and graze them down his wrist. 
goosebumps rise to the surface. I see his mouth clench, muscles tighten, his eyes pour into mine as though I'm the reason for making them blink. I break gaze. Just as he inches towards me, I step back. So that's what you do. You command attention. My cheeks flush as I smile shyly, confessing, I can't help it. <laughs> Yo, it's like talking to you, the best friends you never had. <sighs> so good. Okay, so this is page 74. Um, do I want to tell a story or not? Yeah. Okay. All right. No, this is not a good story one. This is going to get sad, and this is the only like, happy chapter, so let's just focus on that right now. More stories, like 20 minutes of stories up here afterwards, which I'm really scared about because I have no filter, and I'm like, what if they ask me a question and I just tell 900,000 people my secrets, right? <laughs> All right. The type of lover I need. I need someone who knows struggle as well as I do. Someone willing to hold my feet in their laps on days it is too difficult to stand. The type of person who gives exactly what I need before I even know I need it. The type of lover who hears me even when I do not speak is the type of understanding I demand. All right, so um, we're at the end of like what I'm allowed to read for chapter two, but if you're feeling extra spicy tonight, make sure to go home and read page 76 and 77, which I'm not going to read up here today. Okay. <laughs> That's my favorite piece. Nah, y'all, not doing that today. All right, we're going to go to chapter three, page 88, which is the sassiest version of me. No, I'm sassier, but like, this is like, this was, this was a moment, and you'll understand why really soon. Okay. It's like when your like, ex breaks up with you, and then they start dating your twin, is exactly what inspires this piece. <laughs> yeah. That's sad? Okay, go for it. The woman who comes after me will be a bootleg version of who I am. She will try and write poems for you to erase the ones that I have left memorized on your lips, but her lines could never punch you in the stomach the way mine did. She will then try to make love to your body, but she will never lick, caress, or suck like me. She will be a sad replacement of the woman you let slip. Nothing she does will excite you, and this will break her. And when she is tired of falling apart for a man that does not give back what he takes, she will recognize me in your eyelids, staring at her with pity, and it will hit her. How can she possibly love someone who is busy loving someone that he can never get his hands on again? Yeah. But I'm here for the sisterhood, y'all know that, yeah. <laughs> This was like a thing where I had to actively learn, like, yo, why am I blaming her? That's not, what's, that's not what it's about, but you're allowed to feel a little bit of anger. You're only human. Page 97. I like this one. 
I feel like it's like my most creative piece I've ever written. Thank you. I love you all. I wish I could stand here and say I love you, I love you, I love you to everybody, but yeah. That will be a spoken word piece one day, why not? <laughs> Did you think I was a city big enough for a weekend getaway? I am the town surrounding it. The one you've never heard of but always passed through. There are no neon lights here, no skyscrapers or statues, but there is thunder for I make bridges tremble. I am not street meat, I am homemade jam, thick enough to cut the sweetest thing your lips will touch. I am not police sirens, I am the crackle of a fireplace. I would burn you, and you still wouldn't take your eyes off me, cause I and we would look so damn beautiful doing it, they'd blush. I am not a hotel room, I am home. I am not the whiskey you want, I am the water that you so badly need, so don't come here with expectations and try to make a vacation out of me. Thank you. I'm getting to the point where I'm comfortable enough to just be up here and change up the lines, which is really nice, because after you kind of hand this off to the world, it almost feels like it isn't yours. And then you get to go, get up here and like change it all up and surprise people. And you're like, wait a minute, I did write this. I can do it. It's a really good feeling. All right. Page 99. If you want to know the type of man he is. If he can't help but degrade other women when they're not looking. If toxicity is central to his language, he could hold you in his lap and be soft, honey. That man could feed you sugar and douse you in rose water, but that still would not make him sweet. Mm. All right. Okay. Are we good on time? Oh, oh a couple minutes? Okay, seven minutes, all right. Okay. <laughs> if we have seven minutes, let's go to chapter four. Yeah. Page 164. This kind of was inspired by um, always seeking this compliment when I was like early in high school for some reason and um, a lot of self-hate was happening and when a dude would tell me, oh my God, you're amazing, you're totally not like other girls, I was like, amazing, that's amazing, thank you so much. And then I was like, wait a minute, that's a little bit twisted. Um, so then this is what was born from that. You tell me I am not like most girls and learn to kiss me with your eyes closed. Something about the phrase, Something about how I have to be unlike the women I call sisters in order to be wanted makes me want to spit your tongue out. <laughs> like I am supposed to be proud you picked me, as if I should be relieved that you think that I'm better than them. Page 165. Shoutouts to all the brothers in the room. <laughs> all right. We appreciate and love and support y'all so much. Thank you for being here. <laughs> the next time he points out the hair on your legs is growing back. 
do you understand the shout out now? Yeah. <laughs> like, it's so necessary because I'm like, okay, I don't want a shoe flying across and hitting me on the head or something, you know? So the next time he points out the hair on your legs is growing back, remind that boy that your body is not his home, he is a guest, and warn him to never outstep his welcome again. <laughs> Whew. All right. <laughs> it's, that's great. Um, page 170. My issue with what they consider beautiful is that their concept of beauty centers around excluding people. I find hair beautiful. When a woman wears it like a garden on her skin, that is a definition of beauty. Big, hooked noses pointing upwards to the sky like they're rising to the occasion. Skin, the color of earth my ancestors planted crops on to feed a lineage of women with thighs thick as tree trunks, eyes like almonds deeply hooded with conviction. The rivers of Punjab flow through my bloodstream, so don't tell me that these women are not as beautiful as the ones in your country. The next piece is called um, Women of Color. Super short, um, but you know, in those like five words, it's like 20 universes, yeah. Our backs tell stories no book have the spine to carry. All right, one more and then we're gonna finish. Two more. Um, <laughs> 179, I want to apologize to all the women I have called pretty before I've called them intelligent or brave. I'm sorry I made it sound as though something as simple as what you're born with is the most you have to be proud of. When your spirit has crushed mountains, from now on I will say things like you are resilient and you are extraordinary. Not because I don't think you're pretty, but because I realize that you are so much more than that. You know, I saved the best for last. Um, always end with this piece because I love my parents so much. Um, yeah. So it's called Broken English. It was on YouTube, and then I'm like, I made it private because it was really weird. I'm like, why is it like... Just whatever, personal things. Um, anyways, we're going to have some music playing. Um, a friend of mine produced it. Shout outs to all of our immigrant parents. Um, that's what this piece is about. And shout outs to all of you. Yeah. So nice. Can we start again? Okay. Yeah, sorry, I don't know when it stops and starts. Okay. I think about the way my father pulled the family out of poverty without knowing what a vowel was. And my mother raised four children without being able to construct a perfect sentence in English. A discombobulated couple that landed in the new world with hopes that left a bitter taste of rejection, of starvation in their mouth. No family, no friends, just man and wife, 
two university degrees that meant nothing, one mother tongue that was broken now, one swollen belly with a baby inside, a father worrying about jobs and rent, cause no matter what, this baby was coming. And they thought to themselves, for a split second, was it worth it to put all of our money into the dreams of a country that is swallowing us whole? And Papa looks at his woman's eyes and sees loneliness living where the iris was. Wants to give her a home in a country that looks at her with the word visitor wrapped around their tongue. On their wedding day, she left an entire village to be his wife. And now she left an entire country to be a warrior. And when the winter came, they had nothing but the heat of their own bodies to keep the coldness out. And so they faced one another like two brackets to hold the dearest parts of them, their children, close. They turned a suitcase full of clothes into a life and regular paychecks to make sure the children of immigrants wouldn't hate them for being the children of immigrants. They worked too hard. You can tell by their hands, their eyes are begging for sleep, but our mouths were begging to be fed. And that is the most artistic thing I have ever seen. It is poetry to these ears that have never heard what passion sounds like. And my mouth is full of likes and ums when I look at their masterpiece. Because there are no words in the English language that can articulate that kind of beauty. I can't compact their existence into 26 letters and call it a description. I tried once, but the adjectives needed to describe them don't even exist. So instead, I ended up with pages and pages full of words followed with commas and more words and more commas only to realize that there are some things in the world so infinite they could never use a full stop. So how dare you mock your mother when she opens her mouth and broken English spills out. Don't be ashamed of the fact that she split through countries to be here so you wouldn't have to cross a shoreline. Her accent is thick like honey. Hold it with your life. It's the only thing she has left from home. Don't you stomp on that richness. Instead, hang it up on the walls of museums next to Dolly and Van Gogh. Her life is brilliant and tragic. Kiss the side of her tender cheek. She already knows what it sounds like to have an entire nation laugh when she speaks. She is more than our punctuation and language. We might be able to paint pictures and write stories, but she made an entire world for herself. So how is that for art? Thank you. Before we get started, thanks so much. Yo, I felt like a queen up here, so thank you. I was like super tired this morning, felt like a queen, but yo, I am a queen, right? Like we have, 
that's a language we got to start using with ourselves. Um, yeah, thank you for the energy. Y'all woke me up. I got a coffee. Didn't even need the coffee. So thank you. All right. Well, thank Hi. you. That was amazing. <laughs> thank you. Um, I don't know if I've ever spoken in front of this many people before. <laughs> and after this, I might never get asked to do it again. Hey. So I'll try my best. And we'll have some fun here and have some good questions. Mm -hmm. Um, I have to say, when I started reading Milk and Honey, it really brought me back to university and brought me back to my university relationship mm. and all the feels of my university yeah. relationship. Mm -hmm. The on again, the off again, the on again, the off again. Mm. And spoiler alert, it didn't work out. No. <laughs> As I often do not. Yeah. And I really wish I could have traveled back in time and just brought myself Milk and Honey mm. and maybe hit myself over the head with it and said, you know, <laughs> get over it. Learn yeah. how to separate the salt from the sugar mm. and just learn if he wants to be with you, he'll be with you, mm -hmm. which is such basic advice, but mm -hmm. awesome advice mm -hmm. to hear at the same time. Mm -hmm. Thank you. So I will probably get booted off the stage for saying this, especially at the library and especially during National Poetry Month. Yeah. But this is the first book of poetry I've read since university. Wow. And I've enjoyed it sort of eons more than anything I read mm -hmm. during my degree. And I think that's largely due to the fact that a lot of the poetry we're sort of prescribed to read is inaccessible, like it's not mm -hmm. a lot of fun, it's not playful, your presentation is amazing. Thank you. Um, what role did poetry play in your life when you, mm -hmm. before you started writing it? Did you have a relationship with poetry at all or? So, I didn't necessarily, well I mean, I grew up like having crushes on boys and then writing them poems and thinking they would fall in love with me and ask me out, right? Like at the age of grade six, so weird. But anyways, um, I was always, I've always been an expressive person. The art, I think, is not specifically the writing. Like, writing is a tool, and the art is expressing. And, I mean, I've been expressing from the time that I was in grade, was from the time that I was five, and it started with, you know, majority of my life was drawing, and then exploring painting. And then one day, there was a community open mic happening, uh, and I was, like, going through some ish, it was grade 12, and you're like, let me just take out the trash. And so I'm like, I must stop writing for that guy. And I'm going to go write myself a poem, and then I'm going to read it in front of people. I don't even know what that means, but I'm going to do it. And so I got up there, and I read it, and it was like an awakening almost. Like no one had ever listened to me before. And all of a sudden, everyone was listening to me, and I was hooked. And then it was just like the rest is history kind of thing. So that's really, it became something that was, I had all these questions and all of these feelings that like n no one had answers for. And then the poetry was, I have all these questions, and I have to write to figure the answers out. So Milk and Honey is like, throughout university, um, me trying to figure out my shit stuff. So I know you've written in Milk and Honey that you had to convince yourself that it was okay to take up space. Mm -hmm. And then later, um, we interviewed you for Flair, shameless plug here, 60 under 30, <laughs> online now. And you mentioned that you became addicted to spoken word when you were a teenager. So I'm curious about how someone who really had to consciously convince themselves, like, hey, I can be here. Mm. How did you get up on stage? Like, that takes a lot of lady balls to get yeah. up there. Um, okay. So let me think about this. Um, like I said, grade 12, it was a rough year. If anyone went to Turner Fenton that year, y'all know that, 
y'all knew I was having a rough year. Um, and so it was just like a change of space. And honestly, it wasn't, I can't even tell you that it was an active and conscious decision on my part. I think my life, like the poetry and the writing and the performing has saved my life and turned it around and revolutionized so much, right? And so I feel like it was like something higher that I saw this and I was like, I'm going to go up and do this because the majority of, I'm like a shy person. Um, I switch off when I'm on, off, off stage, right? So for somebody that's extremely, extremely shy, um, I honestly started to speak to my friends in middle school. Before that, I was just like that. And so I think that's where the addicted kind of thing comes in because you're silent for so long and there's this voicelessness and then all of a sudden you are projecting a voice and it's your voice and you hear it and they hear it and then the rest is history. What was this first poem about? It was terrible. Um, I was so basically taking tips from everything else, and I was like, okay, let me just write about... It had no theme. Every line was about something different. Like, I was angry at the government. I'm pretty sure that at the time, I didn't even know who the prime minister was. I was just cussing everybody out because I'm like, oh, that's what spoken word is, right? Like, I'm just angry. So I think it was just teen angst, right? And I... you know, should have been reading something like this or writing something like this, but I hadn't found the words to that yet. So I was projecting all of these feelings onto systems I could kind of understand because I grew up, you know, and the adults are always like, oh, politics, all oh, this person's crap and that's garbage. So that's what the first piece was about. And um, everybody in the room, they were like probably 10 years older than myself. So of course they seem like little me on stage. They're like, so good, oh my God. And then they told me like years later when I obviously developed it as an artist that it absolutely sucked. And so, yeah, that's what the first piece was about. And one day I'm gonna probably share it with everybody. Was it a personal piece? No, it was like so anti-personal. Like, it's bad, yeah. Um, one thing I love about your work, and I'm sure everyone else here does as well, is you just have such a range of emotion in mm. your poetry. Like, you have some wicked burns in this book. Ooh, yeah. I love the line about the person who comes after you will mm. be a bootleg version of mm-hmm. yourself. Like, I'm sure Taylor Swift wishes she yeah. had that line in her repertoire. <laughs> it's amazing. And then you also have, like, obviously intensely personal stuff. Mm-hmm. You have some crazy, sexy mm-hmm. poems in there. Mm-hmm. And also some of your work is political as well. Mm-hmm. Do you find that some pieces are easier to read? than others out loud so definitely I mean the hardest pieces to read are page 76 and 77 which is just sexual and the reason that's hard to read is obviously like like it's hard for me to own up to some of those lines in there they are just like whoo okay so it's difficult because um just because of that, but the reason that it's so important is because you have chapter one where I am discussing rape and sexual abuse. So there is like this subject who has her soul ripped from her from such a young age. And so the sexual pieces are so devastatingly important because you can own that sexuality again after it's been taken away and it hasn't been taken away because it's yours and that is why... It's so important to read those. Mm-hmm. Posting, um, posting online is some has in the beginning was really scary, but um, I was just gonna get there. Yeah, the yeah. It was. It's kind of like so early on. Now I don't really care, but <laughs> early on it would be like okay, like I want to share this, and 
it's really the difficult ones I want to share because that's like my innermost like thoughts that are tugging at me. So I would like post something. Um, there's like one about, oh, when your fingers are dipped inside me searching for, that would not come for you, right? And like, y'all know that piece, I hope. Um, when I posted that, I posted, I threw my phone on the other side. I'm like, that's it, like I'm leaving now. Like it's very, very scary because the judgment, right? Like you are there and you are owning your body and you are calling not a specific person, but you're calling somebody out, and that can be really scary to do. And how did it feel when you finally picked up your phone again and looked to see what kind of responses you were receiving? So, some, I actually sometimes never read them, because I'm so scared, like very, very petrified, because it's your soul out there, and then you don't want to read somebody being like, oh, that's, you know, saying something mean sometimes, but you know, I've, like, my skin has grown, like, very, very, very thick, and usually, though, like, when I do read them, it's all love, and I'm like, wow, that's when you're, like, your deepest, most scariest thought sometimes is the most universal. Mm -hmm. And you, I know being a woman on the social media and being a feminist on social media, you obviously must experience a bit of the dark side mm -hmm. as well sometimes. Do you ever feel like you just need to step away and take a break or? Not because of the dark side or like, you know, the meanness, not really because of that. Um, more so, I think, because it's so much and it feels like you're giving to so many people. I think that's honestly social media has been the biggest, biggest and darkest struggle in all of this. I mean, it's no joke. Like, you don't realize the effects that it has until you're, you know, just like you're on it and you. I've become very aware of early on how it made me feel, right? You're spreading yourself thin on this thing and people are allowed to just take it and chew and then bite and spit out. And um, there's this, then you find yourself like comparing to all these other people and it just becomes like this negative thing. And so there's like this moment where you just have to be like, screw it and just focus on turning, disconnecting, turning off and just focusing on you and the work. And I know, did you take a break earlier this year from writing a bit and from being on social media? Yeah, I did. And I'm still on that break. Um, <laughs> Very obviously. Yeah, yeah. Um, I did because it was just, um, the writing wasn't natural anymore, right? And I think it was because I was so tired. And like, this thing came out and like, it was just like the body, the emotions, the feelings, everything's just tired and exhausted. And um, I felt this pressure to, okay, now Milk and Honey is out. Why aren't you promoting it? Like, I should be promoting now. Like, I should be making sure that this thing is doing really well. I work so hard for it. For it. it should be on every list ever. And so I was forcing myself, like, write, 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 write. And then after months of doing that and nothing happening, I was like, wow, I have tried to... Milk and Honey was natural, but now I'm in an unnatural situation where I'm forcing myself to create something authentic, inauthentically. And then that's when I just shut it all down. And I was like, nope, now I'm going to be regular and not give a crap. And then when it feels like it's ready, it's going to come. And it does eventually feel like it's ready. And then you write. And I know you talk a lot about self-care in your work. And I think mm. for a lot of people, that's a bit of a nebulous concept. So do you want to talk a bit about what self-care means to you? Yeah. Um, so growing up, I don't think that I had any concept of what it really meant. Um, and then when I was writing Milk and Honey in like university, it was more so like taking care of myself before I'm rushing off to take care of everybody else. Because who can I really help if I haven't helped myself first? And so... 
I'm more so have been practicing self-care a lot recently because, you know, I'm running around all the time, like doing things like this and it can get very exhaustive. So the self-care is like, all right, so now tomorrow I am allowed to have some sugar and I'm allowed to not talk to anybody and I'm allowed to stay in bed all day because that makes me feel good. And if I want to get a massage, I'm going to go get a massage. And it's even about like, that's very shallow almost, but like deeper than that is changing the language and which I speak to myself, right? Um, that's been really important and has like revolutionized like my body and how I'm moving forward with this journey. Nice. And as Michael mentioned in the introduction, you, aside from your poetry and your illustrations, you had a photo series this year with I your did. sister, or last year with your sister. Yeah. And one of those photos really went viral yeah. and was also recently featured in Newsweek mm -hmm. in an article on the menstruation taboo. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a bit about how that series came to be and if you yeah. anticipated the kind of reaction it was going to receive? Yeah. Okay, so Breb's in the room. Where are you? She's my sister. Oh, she's not here. That's really awkward. <laughs> she's being shy. I know her. She doesn't like, she doesn't even let us take photos of her. Um, so I had kind of this project kind of, so things before they're created kind of fizzle in my mind for a little bit. And so this had been on my mind. I'm like, I really want to create this. And it had been a year. And the reason I want to create it is because every month when I get my damn period, I am sitting there crying about how unlucky I am that I'm a girl and I have to go through this. And then I'm like, yo, that's a really crappy attitude to have because I'm gonna have this for the a majority of my life. So I need to learn how to fall in love with it. And how do I fall in love with it? Like, how do you fall in love with something that basically feels like there's a war inside of you, right? And so my kind of like art has always been my like, this is how I'm going to fall in love. I'm going to work through this thing. And so last year of school, it was a visual rhetoric class. And then my professor was like, I want you to create a visual piece of work that battles that taboo, but you're not allowed to use any words. So boom, this came to mind. I'm like two birds with one stone. Let's get the show started. Um, figured, like drew out what I wanted, told my sister, like come home and we're taking these photos and like went into my kitchen, grabbed everything. And my mom's standing there like, what are you up to? But I really don't want to ask or no, because I'm really scared. Um, Cause then we brought down like all these bloody sheets afterwards to do the laundry. And she was like, okay. And so the part, Posting it online was a part of the process because we were studying the way that different, the same piece of art is viewed differently in different spaces. So I don't remember who it was that we were studying at the time, but he or she said, he or she or they said, um, imagine the Mona Lisa and imagine what you feel when you see it on the stamp, when you see it on the size of like a New York skyscraper or when you see it in real life or on a mug, like it makes you feel differently. So then I was like, yo, I use social media a lot. So let me see how this piece of art is going to be taken differently in different spaces. So like Tumblr, obviously was like, oh, we love it so much. Like this is amazing. And then Instagram is like, yo, you get pretty for Instagram, right? Like you filter everything. Um, so Instagram was like, no, 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 no. And then that's really what happened. And I never in a million years even imagined them taking that ish down because to me, I'm like, that's my regular like once a month experience. So that's like norm. I'm like, why are you doing that? And then they did and 
that's okay. And then you fired back a bit, right? I did, because I got, like, really angry. Because <laughs> I'm just like, what do you mean it's unsafe? What does that even mean? How is that unsafe, right? Like, that is the most natural thing. Like, I mean, just there since forever. Like, how is that unsafe when... And then I didn't realize, like... And then all my friends were like, do you know that they took your photo down, but they have, like, all this pornography up, they have all this up, and then I'm just, like, being riled up. You know, my <laughs> cheerleaders are behind me, and I'm like, that's it. And so I posted it up again. They took it down within eight <laughs> hours, and then I got even more mad, but then I'm like, yo, I know they took down Rihanna's account, so, like, I'm scared. <laughs> and so, so then I'm like, I'm not going to post the photo again, but what I'm going to do is post the screenshot that they took my photo down because all these people were like, oh, they didn't even take her photo down. Look at her. She wants attention. She's a liar. And so then I'm like, I posted that, right? And then my friend Selena was like, I think you should post on Facebook because Facebook is where things go viral. And I was like, whoa, like that will never happen to me. And then I'm like, but let's do it anyway because I'm so passionate about this right now. And that's what I did. And then I went to the AGO for like eight hours and then I came back and then I saw that the Facebook post had four million hits and then I was like, I'm in deep crap right now yeah I think it ended well it did end well it was good it was really good um so obviously your work is really a lot for women written for women but mm. you have some male fans in here as well yeah and what types of comments do you tend to hear from your male fans do they differ at all from your female I mean um readership so when I was writing I was writing for myself, and so there was no like, oh, this is my target audience, and these are the type of poems I'm gonna write for my target audience kind of thing. Okay, that takes me back to like marketing, but you know, that sort of thing. And then so, I think the men in the room are always like, they'll come up to me afterwards and be like, wow, like, thank you. Like, I never, like, to experience almost like being a woman, I think like that's what they usually tell me. Like, I got kind of like an inside look on like, things that, you know, pass by me every day, but, like, this is how they really affect you, and I think that's really cool. Hmm, that's awesome. Mm -hmm. um, I think one of the sort of pleasures of going to an event like this is not only getting to know a bit more about an artist you admire, but mm -hmm. also hearing about the artists that they admire. Mm -hmm. And I know I've read that you're a fan of the poet Warson Shire, and as is Beyonce, as it turns I out. I know! Because her spoken word was featured <laughs> in Lemonade know. this week, which was amazing. Yeah, yeah. And can you tell us a bit about why you love Warshin's work and how it inspires you? Yes, so that was amazing. And I just want to send, like, can we have a round of applause for her? She's, like, <laughs> incredible. Yeah. That made me so happy. Um, so Warson's work kind of worked like this. I mean, I was online one day, I read a piece, and it felt like somebody had kicked me in the stomach. And I was like, I read it, and like something like just happened inside of my body. And then I was like, why is, did she write about my life? And then I was like, who is she? And then I just like, it was a cathartic experience, right? And like, yeah. Had you ever had that experience before with poetry? Only with music, because usually when I write, like, I actually don't read a lot of poetry. Um, my writing kind of comes from music, so I listen to a lot of gwalis, that kind of um, folk Punjabi music, and the only thing that has kind of struck that kind of chord within me are, like, yeah, it's music usually, yeah. Interesting. And I'm sure there are some artists in the room here tonight mm -hmm. who are sort of trying to get a broader audience for their work. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a bit about why you decided to self-publish your book at first mm -hmm. and even how you went about it? Yes, okay. I just want to snap for all y'all artists, right? We're amazing, so that's, yeah. 
so kind of how that started. I mean, I didn't really know that Milk and Honey was like a side effect of what I was doing. Like there was no intention for a book until I was posting all this stuff. And then everyone was like, oh, where's your book? And I was like, what are you talking about? And I was like, okay, maybe I should put one together. And then that's where the difficult part in, comes in, right? Like I am writing about topics that who wants to sell those, right? And like there's no, and then my professors were like, there's absolutely zero market for poetry. Like that's not going to happen. You know, you're better off put, submitting single pieces into anthologies and journals. And then I got really upset and I was like, okay, fine, that's what I'll do. And so I started submitting single pieces to anthologies and journals, but it was like cheating on my work because I mean, I sent the pieces I loved most, which were about trauma, which were about like rape. And they were heavy pieces because those were closest to my heart. And of course they weren't getting published. And then I'm like, yo, this is cheating. Me submitting one piece and sending one piece out is cheating to the body of work because this Milk and Honey is a poem. You open it and you end it. And like that's the whole body and that's what I want folks to experience. And I was so even scared of like, it's a visual experience as well. So I wanted to design the cover, design the pages, put in the illustrations and have nobody involved with any of that because I want to own it all, right? And so that's when I kind of found like CreateSpace, which is a self-publishing platform. And then I just put it all together and then I went through that and it was very easy. They were really helpful. And so did you distribute through them? Or? I did. So they distribute through, like, mostly it's Amazon and, like, Amazon all over the world. And there's some other things as well. You can go on their website. I think they're a partner or sister company of Amazon. So that's what it worked out like. And then I would also do the thing where I would, like, order, like, 200 books to my house and then carry them with my family to each show. And then you would just see, like, all my, like, little sisters and brothers and mom and dad, like, trying to sell these things for $20 a piece. Yeah. And then how did you end up getting a publisher? Ooh. Uh -huh. Okay. So, like, I'm, like, meeting my publishers for the first time today. They're, like, right over here, y'all. And they, like, flew all the way from Kansas. So I'm really excited. Um, yeah. <laughs> so Andrews McMeal, um, Andrews McMeal, they contacted me last year. And let me tell you, I never get excited about anything because I've been let down so much in life. And then... I literally have never screamed out loud in excitement and like Patty sent me an email and I've like like engraved that name into my head ever since. Like I was screaming and I'm like, this was after an event somewhere and then like my friends were over and I just started screaming and running around and like telling everybody and my parents just were like, we don't get it. Like, right, they don't care. They're, well, they care, but like, you know what I mean, right? And like my parents don't really understand the publishing world and so that's really what happened and then we spent a few months like trying to like figure out the contract situation, what's this going to look like and what's that? Do I want to add something new and all of that stuff? And you yeah. added some new work too. I did. I think I added about eight new pages. Um, I took pieces out that I didn't feel were strong enough. And I mean, it was like, it was like getting to do an exam again, right? Um, I got to add, there's like one piece in here, which was like the closing. And it got to like, I got to add the finishing touches, got to take out like some of the pieces that I'm like, mm, I don't really feel you. And then put in like the strong, solid. Yeah. 
Nice. So you have Milk and Honey. You have mm-hmm. your photo series that went viral last year, which mm-hmm. is amazing. Big year. Mm-hmm. Um, you also have a photo series called Rue, mm-hmm. right? Then yeah. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah. Um, okay. So myself and my friend Buljeet, who's somewhere over here. Where's Buljeet? Why my all my friends and family they literally don't want to be oh she's right there like oh my god okay her work was just featured on BuzzFeed like last week so amazing um so I think it's 31 or 32 years ago the 1984 sick genocide um and my family was and along with a bunch of other families that are now living in Toronto were deeply impacted by this genocide and so we are a part of many community organizations where we bring awareness to the um, awareness to this on a yearly basis. And then last year, you know, things were kind of crazy, and so no time to do that. And Buljeet and I got together, and we're like, we really want to create something, something that is going to, you know, hang on like exhibition walls, that sort of thing. And so we created this like 12-part series with three photos stitched together, and it just explores what happened to the sick people in Delhi. Um, in 1984 um the raping the murdering all of that yeah and how was it harder for you to write about this historical experience more than your personal experience or i think it was equally i think it was equally like difficult ish um only because like then you're forced to explore the stories and you're forced to look at the photos and that can become very heavy. And then you're, you know, talking to people and then it gets like you're talking to family and you're like, whoa, this happened. And that's very sad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. And I feel like a lot of people may only be familiar about this through your work mm-hmm. or starting to be familiar. Mm-hmm. That's the thing. It. And I was very scared in the beginning because I'm like, you know, most of my readership isn't sick so will they even understand this and does it even matter shouldn't I do something that is more universal and mainstream but then I was like wait a minute if I do that then who's gonna do this and I have to do it like you know we have to be able to tell our own stories so yeah nice all right I have one last question for you before we move along to questions from the audience um you did a great interview with Shad on Q a couple of weeks Mm -hmm. ago and you mentioned at the end of the interview that you have bigger and wilder dreams than just milk and honey Mm -hmm. so you can tell us a bit about what's next for you okay um so let's see um so I'm going on like a break, right? Where I have zero friends and um, I lock myself up in my room and like I'm going to walk out with like an encyclopedia masterpiece of just stuff. And so that's the plan. Um, I want to explore the spoken word more. Like maybe I want to record, like record it and make it real, you know? Um, there's this pressure where everyone's like, where's milk and honey number two? And I'm like... Why? Um, Let's create something else, you know? Like, it's time. I've been taking a break. It's been two years. And so let's dig into something new and create not, like, a lesser version of something like that, but, like, a whole different world now. So that's the goal. Yeah. Exciting. Curiosity Mm -hmm. peaked. Mm -hmm. All right. So enough from me. We'll move on to our audience questions now. The first one here. Um, what do you think we can do to address issues like the stigma against menstruation, women's body hair, and so on? Mm. Um, Big question. That is, because I'm like, okay. Um, I think it's just we're here right now, and we just started the conversation, right? Like, 
that in and of itself is so important. We're all going to walk away and we're going to do different things. I might write a poem. She'll make a film. You know, you'll have a conversation with 10 people and help change their minds. Like, that's what needs to be done. And I think it's just starting off with just, just open conversation. Like, if I can stand up here, read a poem about loving your hair growth and the entire room erupts in clapter, like... I think we're off to a good start. Yeah. And an Instagram that gets re-grammed a million times. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Question number two. A lot of your poetry is extremely personal. Mm. How did you get comfortable with sharing so much of yourself with the world? I don't think there was... I very much blocked that out. Like, oh, I do that? No, I don't. Like, it just kind of goes like this and that's my like other twin that's what she does um because I think that if I sat here and I really understood this is what you're telling everyone that's really scary and so so it's still scary uh, for sure I don't think about it everyone's like oh how do you feel and I'm like I feel like how I did always I guess because I'm like I think I'm very much shielded from that shielded myself from that because then it also allows me to write like I'm scared that what if I let that in and let that settle and then it does something to the writing yeah but it's also a lot about just throwing it out because you want to and it's my way of letting throwing crap off my back right and just being like let them do what they want with it it's a great attitude mm -hmm. all right question number three what advice would you give to an aspiring writer writer or poet especially in a digital age uh, okay. I think the first and foremost is like, just keep writing. And that's it. I mean, keep writing. We all are going to have our different ways of sharing our work, whether it's social media, whether it's going through different avenues. Um, create a body of work that your bones trust and then go with that. Good advice. Mm -hmm. You could write an advice book. I think as a oh next my God. step. Yeah, a lot advice. of people told me that. And I'm like, I don't know if I can do that right now. I need advice right now. So, <laughs> All right. And then final question here. Um, given your South Asian background, how are you able to fight the cultural stereotypes? And how did your parents initially respond to your poetry? Mm -hmm. And this is signed with a nice heart. So I'm going to give you that. Thanks. Okay. Thank you. Um, I mean, how was I able to fight the cultural stereotypes? I think I do that with the pieces that I write. Um, so my parents had no... My parents only knew that I was going around spoke, um, performing spoken word, right? Because then I had to actually physically leave the house to do that. So they had no idea what's going on on the internet, right? And then I was, like, so terrified that one day someone's going to print out all my super sexual pieces and then leave them <laughs> on my front door and I'm going to get in so much trouble. And then didn't even tell my parents because, like, that thought just didn't occur to me. And then the book, like, the self-published book came and then I, like, put it in front of my dad. He was having his morning tea and then the rest was just like I was so scared and he was like whoa and this man did like a full 360 backflip and like was just like because like literature and books is something that he can understand right like for him like coming from a Punjabi Sikh background spoken word itself like that term he's like I don't know I don't know what that means right so books he could completely understand and then they've read it all they've asked me no questions and they've only offered support so it's been good yeah awesome yeah